Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. So the FSF has called on Microsoft to release Windows 7 as FOSS. Yes, this is not a not a satirical news article. This actually happened on January 14th. Windows 7 reached its official end of life, bringing an end to its updates, as well as 10 years of poisoning education, invading privacy, and threatening user security. The end of Windows 7 life cycle gives Microsoft the perfect opportunity to undo past wrongs and to upcycle it instead. So obviously, to a certain extent, um, you can imagine what the view of the FSF is of Microsoft and, of course, of Windows 7, and of course you might imagine what they think of Windows 10. But take this for what it's worth. Every couple weeks when we cover a story on Microsoft, I get emails, I get telegrams, I get people that bump into me on the street, and and every one of them asks me, what would Microsoft have to do to convince you that Microsoft loves Linux? Even some of the most respected people that I hang out with in in the community that really have a good... uh, they really keep their finger close to the pulse of this have asked and said, I, I think Microsoft has, has changed. And uh, this is the kinds of things that we are talking about. Those of us who lived through the nineties and watched the kind of just visceral hate that came out of Microsoft for anything, open source, anything, Linux, anything really that was a competition of Microsoft was, was hard to tolerate, was hard to stomach, and it was factually inaccurate and oftentimes uh, very malicious in nature. And so consider it from the FSF's perspective. Microsoft has this product, Windows 7. They're no longer using it. In fact, um, they're actively telling users that, hey, your whole screen has turned. The entire monitor has displays a message that tells you how terrible Windows 7 now is and how you better get onto Windows 10. And if Microsoft is to be believed, and it's debatable or not, rather they are to be believed, but if they're to be believed, then Windows 10 is going to be the last version of Microsoft Windows that's going to come out. If that's the case, then there's all we, we can all understand what the what the pressure is on Microsoft to try to get companies and people to switch over to Windows 7, and then they're set for life. But what do you do with Windows 7? And I still, I still in 2020 come across machines that are running Windows XP and they're put in very potentially pretty critical environments. Worked on an ATM system not more than maybe a month or so ago. And same thing, right? Uh, No security updates. Microsoft not actively working on it. I'm sure Diebold has probably negotiated some massive contract with Microsoft to keep some of their machines or, you know, certain aspects of their machines up to date or they're on some sort of closed network. But the point is, 
we haven't even fully migrated away from Windows XP. And now we're trying to go through this same life cycle again with Windows 7. This time I suggest, I submit to you, it's probably going to be a lot worse because people are frankly tired of Windows. And so from Microsoft's perspective, there's no, there's no advantage of keeping Windows 7 around because they are officially supporting Windows 10 and trying to move people off of it. Furthermore, they're actually paring down their Windows team. Every time we talk to somebody from Microsoft, we get that answer. Microsoft is not actively exploring and developing and continuing to promote Windows. They're trying to move away from that. They're trying to move software as a service. They're trying to get to people to, to go to Azure. So what can you do? with this outdated piece of software that isn't going to be used that Microsoft actively wants people to get away from. Why not give it back to the Linux and open source community? Hey, maybe there's something here you guys can learn from. Hey, maybe this is a way that we at Microsoft can contribute to legacy technology of a piece of legacy device that requires PL code. Hey, here's a copy of Windows, the actual source code uh, fleshed out, and let the community pick it up and run with it. We do this time and time and time again in the Linux and open source world, and it never seems to bite us. Look what happened with UbiPorts. Look what happened with Ubuntu Touch. Canonical gave it a full run. They had they they hit the ground with both feet running. Shipped the device, had a device, had a device manufacturer, had convergence, did everything they could do to try to compete in the mobile sphere. Crowdfunded it eventually decided they weren't going to go forward with it. They were going to concentrate on the server and the desktop. And so did they kill it? Did they did they bury it? Did they throw it, pick it up and throw it out? No. They handed it back to the community. What what happened? Dalton Durr stepped up. Others in the community stepped up, began to maintain that project. And today, as I sit here in 2020, I would tell you that the most likely project to succeed as a third player to iOS and Android is undoubtedly UbiPorts. Much as I like Sailfish OS, probably going to be UbiPorts. And it's one of the go-to operating systems that people on the Pine phone are playing with. And so the community tends to step up any time there is a gap. And Microsoft has that opportunity. Microsoft has a product that they don't want to support, that they don't want to pay to support, that they don't want to offer to their customers. They have said time and time again that now they love open source, now they love Linux. Well, here's your opportunity. Here's your opportunity to take a product that you don't want, that you're not going to use, and hand it over to people that will maintain it for you so that Windows 7 customers, people that are on Windows 7, could potentially continue to use that operating system if they so chose to. And I think we all know that this is not going to happen, right? Quote, we call on them to release it as free software and to give it to the community to study, to improve. As there's already precedent for releasing some core Windows utilities as free software, Microsoft has nothing to lose by liberating a version of their operating system that they themselves say has reached its end. And so the next time somebody asks me, well, what do you, what do you think Microsoft could do to prove to you that they're really all in on open source and release the, Windows, release the source code to Windows 7? Heck, release the source code to Windows XP for all I care. Give us something. Give us something that we can use that, you know, retro gamers would love to have a, 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 a free and open source copy of Windows to be able to run stuff on. The best thing about Windows 95, Windows 98, and DOS is the fact that I can still run them on my 486 and my Pentium 4 to play all those old DOS games, and they still work because there's no activation servers. Just had a, co a call from a guy last week who said, I'm not going to be able to use my Windows XP box anymore because I can't activate it. Pretty frustrating. And Microsoft has the ability to do something about it. Now, we all know that they won't. 
But if you if you're asking the question, well, what kind of things would Microsoft have to do? This is the stuff that Microsoft has to do. 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. It's a number to join us. We'd love to have you. You can also email us live at asknoahshow.com. Brad calls from Baltimore. Hey, Brad, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, how you doing? Good, man. What's up? Um, I know that uh, DNS was never designed with security in mind, and it seems like the weakest link as far as most people's setups. Um, I know that there some new technology coming out, uh, DNSSEC being one of them, mm-hmm. and then there's DNS Crypt. Yep. Um, I was just wondering, like, what do you suggest or what do you use to secure your DNS? Uh, I don't secure my DNS right now. I, I'm using it open for, for a couple of reasons. The, the first thing, as you correctly pointed out, the, at no time when we when IPv4 and, and subsequent DNS was, was launched, did we ever really think about how we're going to secure these things? And it wasn't really ever designed to be secured. So nobody really thought it mattered if somebody could see what website you were trying to resolve, because it's a, essentially it's a public lookup, right? And so the, the argument went, who cares if so-and-so wants to look up asknoahshow.com and know what IP address correlates to it? And of course, now we know that there's all sorts of nefarious uses for that. Um, I have not, I, I, I've, I've read about uh, uh, DNSSEC. I haven't. I don't have much experience with it. I have played a little bit more uh, with DNS Crypt, and I believe it's actually Cloudflare that offers uh, a, a, a an external DNS resolver that will allow you to uh, will encrypt um, over. I, I want to say. I want to say, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I want to say the quarries go over HTTPS, um, and and that's yeah, that, yeah, and so it's that baked, so, it's baked into Firefox actually, right? So I yeah, so I've I've just begun to play with it, and and part of the issue is, you know, it's it's kind of the 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 cart is a little bit before the horse, right? It's the same thing with IPv6. I would love nothing more than to than to dive all in on IPv6. I don't know why we're all standing at the edge of the cliff going, "You go first. Um, we're out of IPv4 addresses, or darn near close to, um, and. Uh, IPv6 is built for the future. So why we haven't switched yet is beyond me. But there is so much legacy equipment and legacy providers that when you, if you try to go IPv6, for example, it just breaks half of the sites. You can't I, IP chicken, for example, doesn't work on IPv6. And so uh, if I if yeah. I can get to a certain if I can get to Google, but I can't get to IP chicken, I know that there's an IPv6 problem. I suspect encrypted DNS is going to be along the same uh, same lines. You know, it's fine to set up in a lab environment and play with. Um, as far as actually resolving stuff, if you're really looking for privacy, I, I think today the modern solution is a VPN, right? And so you okay. connect. Well, and so th- consider this, right? Your ISP is going to know that you're connected to a VPN, but as long as you kept the VPN connected, uh, they're not going to be able to do traffic correlation to determine, you know, something from this exit yeah. node launch the site, and so we can see that correlation from your house. All they see is this gigantic tunnel. Um, and, and so as, as I look at those kinds of things, I say to myself, I think that's a more reasonable solution right now. Uh, and if I didn't want to pay for a VPN, then I would use something like Tor, right? Um, also going to obscure 
my traffic to a certain degree. And again, my ISP is not going to be able to resolve my, my DNS because it's, it's going through the Tor network and being resolved that way. So I, 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 I hesitate to really dive in to these things in production quite yet, okay. but certainly it's something that we should all continue to play with and very much push our ISPs and push as a community to move forward because there's, you know, we encrypted all the traffic in with HTTPS and that's, that's major progress because four five, six years ago, that was not the case. The vast majority of sites that were on the internet in 2015, 2014 yeah. uh, weren't even using uh, SSL. And so everything was out in the open. So we've made some real progress there, but you're right. The next step in that chain is DNS. And really, once we get that done, I think the threat vector is really going to be limited essentially to browsers. Um, there's going to be no right. services out there that are, that are, 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 are susceptible to, you know, to, to, to spying. But what's going to happen is people are going to start to look to the browser itself to try to infiltrate it and, and get information out of it. Okay. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I wish I had a better answer. I wish I could tell you that, hey, D encrypted DNS is, is the way to go when it's ready to drop into production and all that. I, I just can't tell you that with, uh, with, uh, with pure honesty. Colonel calls from the Northeast. Hey, Colonel, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. Um, I just wanted to play a little devil's advocate to your opening remarks. Please. So to, to preface, I actually agree with you. Um, however, to play devil's advocate, um, one thing that would be in Microsoft interests to keep it closed source is the extended support that they charge for companies that can't get off of it. Right. The other, the other issue is that if they've got – I don't know how much – and being closed source, there's no way to know, but I don't know how much of Windows 7 is in Windows 10. So by open sourcing Windows 7, how much of Windows 10 are they also open sourcing? Yeah, I so so let's back up for a second. I, I spoke earlier about some ATM machines that I worked on. I strongly suspect, even though I, I'm not you know a big enough player that Microsoft has these conversations with me, but I strongly suspect Diebold has contracts in place that are still supporting XP. So to your point... I don't think that Microsoft is going, I think they stand to make more money on Windows 7 after Windows 7 went EOL than they ever stood to make before Windows 7 went EOL, right? Because prior to that, I, they anybody could just buy a copy and use it. Now companies are going to have to pay out the wazoo to be able to continue to use their, their software and continue to get some sort of security updates. But even if you negotiate one of those big contracts, even if you're one of those players, there's still... All of the research labs, all of the universities, all of the people that traditionally find problems in operating systems are no longer looking at Windows 7. They've moved on to Windows, 7, Windows 10 because if you find something in Windows 7, there's really nothing you can do about it. Um, and so the vast majority of eyes are going to be moving to a different operating system. So it's not in Microsoft's best interest to to hang on to something that they have officially pulled the plug on. And it is in their best interest, or it is in the community's best interest, to have access to that, is it not? Oh, no, I agree with you. I'm just pointing out one of the reasons why they may not open source it. Yeah, no, they even won't. Even if they, you know, quote, now love Linux and open source. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, um, so just 
playing a little devil's advocate. Yeah, no, I appreciate the call. I, I don't think there's any chance. Microsoft is never going to, re- mark my words on this, Microsoft is never going to release something as open source and release a source code for something that they stand to make money on and that they have an exclusive market to begin with. The reason that they're open sourcing Visual Code, the reason that they're open sourcing PowerShell, the reason that they're open sourcing all of the other stuff that they're making available to Linux is not because they have some new profound love for Linux and open source. It's because they are looking around and saying, why are all these developers that work in these Microsoft shops doing all their actual development on Linux? Hmm, maybe because Azure runs on Linux. Huh, I wonder if we could do something about that. Well, what if we built the tools into Windows? And now all of a sudden, WSLB has more relevance. All of a sudden, now we start to understand why they're putting a bunch of time, effort, and money into PowerShell. Ryan, DOS Geek, of all people, uh, spent a good long three minutes talking about how great PowerShell is, right? Why? Because Microsoft took their enormous corporate entity and focused it like a laser on a terminal. And what you wind up with is one of the coolest commercials for a terminal I've ever seen in my life. And to follow, the terminal actually lives up to expectations. Who thought it, right? So there is, we. I think the best way to look at this is, is if you were fishing for gold, upstream, there's somebody that's hacking off big chunks of gold and 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 taking those and putting them in a basket and carrying them off and and making their money and you're way downstream and you're picking up some of the with a sieve and you're kind of picking up uh, uh little bits of 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 flakes of gold that are that are are swimming downstream and you pick those up and say hey that's that's kind of a cool thing that's how I look at Microsoft and their love for Linux when I can get PowerShell on Linux and I have to administrate a Windows server kind of nice to have that software available on my laptop now am I going to let it run on my personal computer, given the amount of telemetrics and stuff that Microsoft collects? Heck no. But the fact that it's available is kind of cool. 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at com. Hank calls from Grand Forks. Hey, Hank, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, good to talk to you again. Yeah, same. Say, first off, I got a couple of things I wanted to talk about tonight. First, uh, I had spun up a, uh, an instance on DigitalOcean, and I installed free PBX yes. just to play around with. Yeah. And I got a hold of your friends over at Vox Telesis in Fargo there, mm-hmm. and I uh, got a uh, you know got a phone number for them, from them and stuff so I could hook it up and start playing with it. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted everybody to know that it was on a Friday. It was storming. They were sending people home. And there was one guy in the office who stuck around to to uh, make sure everything got set up for me. So uh, that's awesome. What a fantastic uh, customer service story! I think. Yeah, no, those guys are great, and they they've you know that's why we work with them is they they just do a good job. And the, the, the other part of it is they're true geeks too. They actually, if you're in the Grand Forks area, at, at the last Friday of every month, um, we meet uh, for the Linux Users Group in Grand Forks over at uh, Gamble Hall at the University of North Dakota. And last uh, last month. Uh, Michael Jennings, the owner of Vox Telesis, came down to give a presentation on how they're using Linux and Zabbix and Zen and Proxmox to run their entire infrastructure. And he logged into his production systems, and you can see how the heart of Vox Telesis works. And they're fine sharing that because they're a true community uh, player. So if you want to use the same technology they're using, they'll show you how to do it, and they'll give you the licensing to do it. So, yeah, no, I, I hands down, they are a great company to work with. Yeah, they are. Uh, the second thing is, um, I was trying to help out a, a lady who has a, uh, a consignment store. Um, she was taking transactions and, and everything, doing all of her, her uh, transaction data, doing it by hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
it was just, it looked painful to do, and I, I offered my services to kind of help her out and put her into a, a POS system. Sure. And so I went around and I found a, a what I thought was a usable piece of software that was more geared toward um, consignment stores. It wasn't mm-hmm. your typical, like, Unicenta or Open Bravo or anything like that. Sure. So I, I, I took the time, took like a month to learn the software myself, went back to her and... I showed her exactly what I learned, and I kind of <clears throat> went over at a very high level how she could use it to to uh, positively impact her business. Mm-hmm. And she came back to me and said, well, it all looks good, but it's just too complicated. There's mm. too many steps to do what I want to do. Sure. And I, I just, I it shocked me when she, when she said that, because I, I don't know if I'm missing something about software in general. I mean, I, I understand that. I am not your ordinary computer user. None of the listeners of the Ask Noah show are. We we kind of like to delve, dive in and, and really learn how to use something. Yeah, absolutely. And my thing, my my thinking is, it's it's a computer and it's software. It has the capability to do things. The end user has to guide it and show it how to do it or what to do. You know and. I don't know. Am I missing something? Or is, is no, it- you're you're not. Well, you're not missing something. What what has happened is technology is born, and we have computers, and we have operating systems, we have software, and what happens over time is individual companies come in and take that software and go, that's a great idea, little geek. Now let me show you how we can make it, uh, you know, sellable to the masses. And so that's how you wind up with the Instagrams and the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world becoming the predominant technological platforms of communication when there are there are so many more powerful alternatives out there. But the, the thing that gets the good branding, the thing that has the simple hip uh, cool web UI is the thing that is going to get traction. And so as it relates to POS, for example, that's why Square, for example, uh, has such massive traction because they have a single app. You install it. People can wrap their head around that. When you try to do anything remotely complex or remotely robust uh, with some of these systems, they fall flat on their face because they were never built for it. It's designed to be a very straightforward, simple, out-of-the-box solution that anybody can wrap their head around. And Fortunately or unfortunately for us, depending on what side of the fence you're on, people have started to expect that 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 very sleek UI and that very intuitive way of of clicking on things or or navigating around. And so when you start getting into things that have menus and uh, and different screens and and different interfaces on it, all you're you just you just lose a lot of people. And my answer to that has been. Uh, training, which you did. Hey, let me come in and show you how to do these things. The other thing that I found to be remarkably effective is basic documentation, taking what comes in the manual and stripping it down, taking screenshots of the screens that they're going to use. And what I would tell a client if they came to us and said, here's the problem we're having in the software setup is great, but it's just too complicated. I can't really figure it out. I'd say, here are the seven or eight functions that you're going to use. You just pay attention to these things and try that for 30 days. If it doesn't work, then come back to me and we can have a discussion about something else. And and the reason I'm telling you that is because if you come to, if we, if we go to a simpler solution, what's going to happen is down the road, you're going to reach a point in your business where you're going to say, well, now I want to do X, Y, or Z. Now I want to control inventory. And I'm going to tell you, well, 
there's no way to do that on this simple software. We, now we have to start all over again. And now we have the added problem of we have to move all of your customer data and all of your billing data and all of your financial data over to this new system. So let's try to do those migrations as little as possible. And let's try to land on the, the permanent solution the first time, even if it's a little bit more complicated. And we did that ourselves at AltaSpeed. When we switched to OS Ticket, there was about 50 million features that we didn't need an OS ticket. And I just told everybody, nobody use it. All we're doing is this, this, and this, which is what we did in our old ticket system. And as over time, we have slowly started to integrate the rest of those features uh, into our business model to the point that now we use all of it. Um, and it was a slow process and it worked really well for us. But the reason we haven't had to migrate off of that software is because we w entered into it with the big picture in mind and just ignored all of the other buttons. And I found that to be, I would say, maybe 75, 25% successful, right? 75% of the time people are okay with that. 25% of the time people just say, nope, I want something simpler. Um, and at the end of the day, the old saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink, right? If they're stuck on, I'm going to go to Best Buy and buy whatever big box solution they want to buy, let them do it. It's, you're just going to make more money when they, when they call you six months later and say, well, now we have to move off of this. Yeah, right. Yeah, I get all that. And, you know, the other thing that's frustrating with her situation is she has a full-time job, plus she's trying to run a business. Sure. And she doesn't have the structure in place to to train or to have me train somebody to become the expert to yeah. know the software. So. Yeah, and that um, tra a frustrating story. Training, yeah, and I, I, I very much appreciate the call. And training is one of those things, too, that most businesses – don't tend to, I don't think, put enough stock into it. The, the amount of times that I have told a, a business, hey, we will come in, we will we will sit down with all of your people, we will walk you through X, Y, and Z, and the amount of people that are willing to pay for that are almost nil, right? You show It usually goes something like, well, you show John how to do it, and then he can show the rest of us how to do it. Well, the problem is John isn't a tech educator. John is just the guy that were, that happens to be the most techy-inclined uh, of the crowd. And so to try to go down that model is, I mean, quite literally, the blind leading the blind. And so I try to encourage, uh, I try to encourage all businesses, allocate something for training. It doesn't have to be a lot, but figure out what you can allocate in your budget for training and put that money towards training a hire a professional to come in and give some training to your employees. If you can't do that, then at least take one of your employees and say, hey, you're responsible for training going forward. So when you have these people that are doing these things, here's what I want you to do. You go and read all of these things or find out the answers, and then you come back to us and and present and, and go around so that somebody is responsible for disseminating knowledge throughout the company because you don't have anybody uh, – I mean, it's just it's a critical portion of your of your business that you're ignoring. David calls from Germany. Hey, David, welcome to the Ask Noah show. Oops, I have to click on this here. There we go. Hey, David, welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hey, uh, so three weeks ago, I called uh, you with a question about um, virtualization. And mm -hmm. I, uh, you asked me to call back, and I wanted, just wanted to thank you on the recommendation on the KVMing and um, PFSense and Freenas. Great. Well, um, currently trying out it on just, I'll, I'll, I'll kill this and, and um, reinstall when 2004 Ubuntu is out, but currently it's Matei and Bird Manager or whatever. Um, not only does uh, Freenas work, but um, I 
could attach the ZFS pool that I used before, the mirrored ZFS pool, um, to the uh, guest OS directly. Um, you awesome. cannot do that with Word Manager. You have to um, uh, actually edit the XML stuff, but it's absolutely doable. So well, let me ask you this: If you, when you have, so is the ZFS pool running on the same box? So inside of Vert Manager, I'm just trying to think through this a little bit. If if I go if I went into Vert Manager and I clicked on Manage Storage and I added a new, uh, mm. I forget what they call it, but it, it added. I think it's a volume. If you add a new volume and browsed to where that ZFS pool was mounted, you can't add that directly. Um, no, I think Vert Manager only allows you to create um, virtual disks. No direct attack, uh, no huh. direct attack storage. Interesting. Okay, I, I, huh? That's interesting. I've never tried it with ZFS, so that's I've just tried it with the. Uh, uh, that's interesting. So, uh, well, anyway, but you had it, you got it to work. That's yeah. the important part. And you said you virtualized PFSense as well. Yeah, I virtualized PFSense as well, and that works as well. And I would have a recommendation um, uh, on. Oh, can I call you back? One of the babies is crying. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Yeah, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. But yeah, give me a call back. I would love to hear that because the the, the nice thing about virtualization, right, is it lets you heart, it lets you draw so much power out of one machine. So c- consider this, right? You have a, a a CentOS box on a Dell server with four NICs. You virtualize PFSense. You virtualize FreeNAS. You virtualize uh, you know, your workstations, and you have a single box that can run an entire office. The internet comes in through one port of one of the NICs on the server. The LAN goes out to the switch where all of the other devices and access, excuse me, access points, anything else connects. And inside of that same virtualization host, you have all of your VMs and your workstations that are running snapshots and being stored maybe back to, uh, you know, a FreeNAS pool. Absolutely fantastic. I mean, I'm really impressed with the, uh, with what what can be done and the potential there. So uh, we'll come back to It looks like he's still connected. We'll come back to you in just a second, David, and I appreciate the call and let me know how that goes. James calls from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome to the Ask No Show. I know this is a, um, a parent of Ubuntu um, newer version from Mint 19.3. The problem I'm having is I have an app that doesn't, behave too well, and I can't get it to roll back the app to older version, and I can't find an article on how to force it to roll forward. We need to try to reinstall the app and go to the repos and stuff. It just says, what's the oh, na- it's already what's, got the current version. What's, what's the name of the app? I'm trying to get um, Plank to... Plank no longer um, wants to change... Um, Seems properly, and the write-ups I've been able to find say that they they did something in that particular version that's in 19.3, and to either or um, try to manually patch it, which I haven't figured out how to do, or roll back or roll forward, which mm. should fix it. Problem is, uh, Synaptic Package Manual says I can't go backwards, and I can't find a write-up how to force it to go forward. I know if I was in something I have used before, but not too thrilled because it sometimes goes forward too much, but it's hard to you know, go forward, you know, almost to the end of infinity, you know what I mean? All right, so let me ask you this. Well, hold on. So, so Plank, if I remember right, is, is by default, it's available in the it's official... Docky. 
Yeah, available in the official Ubuntu repositories, but I think there's a separate PPA for the latest Plank, isn't there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Here it is. Yeah, uh, Rico Rico tis a PPA for the latest Plank uh, PPA. Have you tried using that? Oh, I haven't found that article. Everybody's redirecting me. To what I was finding was redirecting me to use the official uh, Ubuntu PPAs. Right. Which is, by the way, what I would do if you uh, if you know if you if you just wanted the the you know the stable version. But yeah, there is a there is a PPA specific. Looks like there's a PPA specifically that has. Uh, looks like there's a number of different things in here in addition to Plank. Um, but th- I think this is what I would do. I would start with by adding this uh, this PPA, which I'll put in the show notes for you, and and see if that doesn't get you to where you need to be. Because uh, you know, really, and again, this is where everybody has to make their own decision, right? Because you you have a choice. You can either be on the latest operating system all the time and try to have the latest uh, software available, and so on and so forth. The problem with doing that is, you know. When Plank developers go to release their their code, they're going to publish for the latest LTS. They're, it's not necessarily going to be whatever the the latest and greatest is. This is where I respectfully disagree with my friends that that advocate for rolling distros. It's nice, it's good, it's organized to have a set point. Hey, this is when the software comes out. Here's our release cadence. Here's what you should aim for. Not this moving goalpost thing where just, hey, whoever wants to target, just target the latest thing possible and let's just hope everything works together. Um, that, to me, does not seem like a uh, like a great way to go about it. Uh, let's go back to David in Germany. Did uh, did we get the baby taken care of? Uh, yeah, he's with me. He's oh. Actually, uh, actually this, he's the one called Noah. Oh, there you go. Well, that's awesome. Well, then he's definitely welcome on the Ask Noah show. So t- tell me, if you don't mind, t- talk to me a little bit yeah. about how you actually went through the process of virtualizing PFSense. Do you have, e- do you have like separate network interfaces passed through um, directly to that, that VM and then it yeah. comes back out to the, uh, to the yeah, land? Exactly. So, um, yeah. Uh, so after your recommendation, I actually purchased the second uh, quad NIC. Um, and I put it in the, in the box and it, that's actually just oh. a direct PCI pass through. Outstanding. Well, that's great, and I'm glad to hear. And and the performance is good. Internet speeds. The family isn't complaining. Anything like that? No, no one's complaining. I I noticed a slight uptick, and I, I this is probably not correct measurement. Maybe it's just a uh, perception thing that the CPU is um, a little higher on the load virtualized than it was on the old box, which is well, the old box is like a Dell Optiplex. 330, which is like an ancient machine. Yeah. Um, but it was working. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll probably um, maybe, uh, um, I don't know, repurpose that machine for something else. Outstanding. Um, but speaking of NASAs, um, last week you had someone calling in and, and asking for recommendation on a silent box for a NAS, right? Yes. Yeah, um, I have, and I definitely would recommend to anyone. Um, it's uh, small, it's sleek, it's the uh, Fractal Note 304. Oh, Fractal Design! Oh my gosh! You Yeah, and it's cheaper than the one that you recommended. What um, What was the name of it? Fractal uh, Design. Fit on the two no- rack. Node 304. Uh, Node 304. Yeah. Oh my it's goodness. Micro um, ATX. One. Yeah, this is a much uh, no, better choice. Uh, it's yeah, and it has uh, six bays for three and a half inch drives, and it's 
Thailand, and it's um, I really, really love it. Ah, this is fantastic. Um, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to... I ordered a... It was actually Rikai that made a recommendation for me to uh, to, to take a look at Fractal Designs, and when I rebuilt my... my oh, I, I built a Ryzen box, and when I did that, I went with a with a fractal design case, and I could not be happier with that case. the The build quality—I mean, you pay for it; it's quality stuff. But the the build quality is just second to none. It's a slick looking case, and the fact that this thing—you're right—it's cheaper than the the silver tone, and I can almost guarantee you that the build quality of this is going to be superior. It looks like they have a smaller one too. They have a two hundred two that's just a, a mini ITX. It's just a tiny little slim uh, jobby. Man, this company is wow. something else. Yeah, but I wouldn't use that for a NAS. Yeah, I wouldn't either because there's not enough drive. It will expand later on. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And three weeks ago, you had a gentleman calling him from London about the um, vulnerability that you could uh, turn on stuff, um, the microphones with laser. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, so a, a, a slight um, thing on that. Um, this is probably not the pressure of the photons uh, turning on the microphones. So I don't want to plug uh, a YouTube channel, but um, well, he doesn't need plugging. Um, Smart Every Day yes, does a piece on this. Yeah. Um, one of the researchers. Yeah. 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 And the researchers actually said they don't know why this happens. So sometimes I have the feeling that in the, in the vulnerability infested world, people just see malicious intent when there's only a bug or an ex- unexpected effect. Mm-hmm. And Maybe this is um, just people underestimating the, the complexity of technology. Um, so I guess we just we just try to be aware of stuff and fix it and get on with our lives because most of the cases not malicious intent. Sure, just a sure. Yeah, I can get I can get on board with that all day long. Well, I appreciate the information and thanks for uh, thanks for uh, for covering a couple different things over the past few weeks. And if I have an update, I'll take one of the other babies and call you. <laughs> I would appreciate that. Make sure to give that baby a kiss. That's uh, that's great. That's adorable. 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. Of course, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. That's the number to join us. You can make your voice heard, become a, the pro- become a part of the program anytime. So Red Hat 8.2 has been released this week. Uh, nothing... Nothing earth-shattering, but we thought we'd give it a mention. App streams, of course, if you're remembering, allowing system administrators to determine how close to the edge that they want to run, and it kind of helps split the difference. And I'm, of course, getting some slack in the chat room for for uh, making some disparaging comments for those who choose to use rolling releases. But Red Hat is trying to split that difference, and they're trying to give predictable six-month release cadence cycles for minor releases so that people can know what to expect, and then you can choose what app train you want to be on and choose how fast you want to get software delivered. RHEL 8.2 Beta is designed to make it easier for IT organizations to adopt production-ready innovations faster, and of course the same cadence an engineering process is also intended to help their hardware partners uh, more d- deliver hardware configurations and furthering customer choices for data centers. Um, RHEL 8.2 Beta furthers the development with GCC Toolset 9.1, Python 3.8, and Maven 3.6. So make sure to go check out RHEL 8.2. As a reminder, they give out a free license, a free developer license that you can go over to Red Hat and sign up for, and you're able to license a production copy 
of Red Hat for use for testing and playing and, and so on and so forth. So there is no longer a reason to use um, community respins if you're trying to test for production environment. You can actually install RHEL under developer's license. You can get everything tested and running. Go to your boss and say, hey, look, isn't this working great? They say yes. They pay the license fee. You put it on a regular Red Hat subscription. You don't have to reinstall. You don't have to upgrade. You don't have to do any any of the crazy things that we used to have to do back in the day uh, to, to, to get Red Hat to work. So great job on Red Hat. Exciting to see another release. Thought we'd give it a mention. Now, because it seems like I can never go more than, uh, I don't know, a week without somebody coming up with uh, with a privacy violation. Ring is back in the news again. An investigation by the EFF of the Ring doorbell app, this time for Android, found it was packed with third-party trackers, sending out a plethora of customer information, personally identifiable information. Now, there are four main analytics and marketing companies that were discovered to be receiving this information. And the names and private IP addresses, mobile network carriers, persistent identifiers, sensor data on the device, all of these things are being sent to these companies. Now, the danger in sending even tiny little bits of this information of analytics and tracking to these companies is that they combine those tiny little bits to to form a unique picture of a given user's device. And so if it was just the one piece of information one time, that would be fine but they actually build profiles for people. And that cohesive whole represents a fingerprint that allows them to start to follow you anywhere that you go and interact with anything that you interact with and what other apps you interact with and what other devices you interact with. And so essentially they're providing trackers, the ability to spy on what a user's doing with their digital lives. And all of this takes place uh, without any real notification to the user, without any real consent to the user, other than the EULA that you sign up uh, when you start uh, the the uh, the app. In most cases, there's no way to mitigate uh, the tracking once it's done, once those companies have that information, thanks to third-party doctrine, which we've covered multiple times on the show in third-party doctrine law. They don't have a responsibility to give you oversight over that. And even when that information is not misused, and used precisely for the stated purpose, it still has a whole bunch of side effects that aren't disclosed to the user. So their testing using the Ring Android version 3.21.1 revealed that personal information delivery to branch.io, mixpanel.com, appsflyer.com, and facebook.com, Facebook for your graph API, is alerted anytime the app is opened And upon the device actions such as app deactivation after the screen is locked due to inactivity, information is then delivered to Facebook. And if you don't have a Facebook account, includes, uh, excuse me, even if you don't have a Facebook account, that information is still delivered to Facebook. It includes the time zone, the device model, the language preference, the screen resolution, the unique identifier, which persists even after you reset the OS level, uh, uh, the OS level uh, advertiser ID. The branch describes itself as a deep linking platform, which a number of unique identifiers, as well as the local IP address and model and screen resolution, so on and so forth. All of that stuff is being sent. AppsFlyer, the big data company focused on the mobile platform, uh, is given a bunch of information as well when the app opens up. Uh, Certain actions, such as interacting with the neighborhood section of the app, that information includes your mobile carrier, when Ring was first installed, when it was first launched, a number of unique identifiers within the app, whether or not AppFlyer is tracking uh, came pre-installed on the device. 
that last bit of information is presumably to determine whether AppFlyer is tracking the included bloatware on low-end Android devices. So manufacturers often offset the cost of device production by selling consumer data. And, you know, when the... I, we have watched that and speculated on that when they were when the, when you know like Chromebooks came out and the Chrome PCs came out. We started looking and said, "How can you sell this thing for one hundred fifty bucks, two hundred dollars? This is crazy." Well, this is how they're doing it. This is why you can walk into Best Buy. This is why you can walk into Lowe's and go and spend two hundred bucks and and get a and get a ten eighty p or four k or whatever camera that you're putting on the side of your house. It's because they're augmenting it by selling your information. The most alarming thing that came out of this was AppFlyer also receives the sensors installed on the device and the current calibration settings. And so Ring is giving Mixpanel the most information by far, users' full name, their email addresses, device information such as the OS version, the model number, whether Bluetooth is enabled, the app settings, the number of locations a user has on Ring devices installed on. All of that stuff is being collected and sent to Mixpanel. Mixpanel briefly mentions in Ring's list of third-party services, but the but the amount of sheer data that Ring is handing over to them is nowhere to be found, really. Uh, and so, a massive, massive thank you to the uh, to the EFF for actually digging into these things. And if you want, we'll have the article linked in the show notes. You can go through and read. It's actually fairly fascinating. They outline the details of how they actually set up devices to capture all of this network traffic. And because all of the traffic, thank God, is at least being sent in HTTPS, they, it makes it more difficult to decipher. And so they go through some of the techniques and the ways that they set up these things to block certain noise from the Android device, from all of the other apps that might call out and just concentrated on the Ring app and what Ring is talking out. But I, I was having a conversation with Brandon Johnson today and him and I were talking about this and he said, yeah, it's just it's like every other week it comes up. And I said, listen, I'll stop talking about Ring when they stop treating people's personal, private, in their home cameras like public property. The fact is they we just went through this. Not not what, three months ago, they just got caught uh, basically not handling customer information correctly. And that information was leaked to include camera recordings from the insides of people's houses and this is getting out and nobody is talking about this nobody cares people just go out and buy the very next thing the ring comes out with a new camera i saw it at my local lowe's the other day not only do they have the ring camera that you put like as your doorbell replacement they got a whole line of them now now you can put them outside your house you can put them outside the wall i mean any place you want to put a camera ring is there to do it and they'll do it for a fantastic rate because at the end of the day they're just going to sit that's not where they make their money they make their money off of selling your privacy <sighs> Absolutely infuriating. 855 450 Noah. That's 1 855 Another follow up. This comes to us from Reuters. Apple uh, dropped plans to let iPhone users fully encrypt the backups of their devices. Uh, in the company's iCloud service after the, after the FBI came to them and said, hey, this is really going to hurt our investigations. So six sources told Reuters the text giant's reversal about two years ago had not previously been reported on. And it shows how much Apple actually does want to help the U.S. law enforcement efforts and intelligence agencies, despite taking this hardline approach in high profile legal disputes with the government that, hey, 
I am not a person that is we are not the company that is that's going to sell out. We stand for privacy. We stand for security. This is what we sell on. Right. But Apple did, in fact, turn over the Pensacola shooters iPhone backup uh, over to the FBI when it was requested. And so this hard line in the sand of we don't give up, we won't help people break into iPhones. Well, they don't need to because all of the data is being backed up on their cloud service and they're not encrypting this. They're just handing that over to the federal government. Now, more than two years ago, Apple told the FBI that it planned to offer users end-to-end encryption when storing their phone data on iCloud. And the FBI officials came back and said, this, this, this is not going to – this is bad. This is really bad. And so under that plan, it was primarily designed to thwart hackers, but Apple would no longer have to give the key to unlocked encrypted data – meaning that they would not be able to turn material over to authorities in a reasonable form, even under a court order, because they didn't have the key to unlock the encrypted backups. Now, I covered two weeks ago, I think, a methodology in which if Apple really wanted to break into an iPhone, at the end of the day, the pin is only so long. We've only got nine digits to work from. Therefore, the key space is fairly small. And given the amount of computing power that the FBI could leverage, if they were working together with Apple, chances are they could pretty much break any pin that they want. This is where it gets a little more complicated because where we're hearing in the mainstream press that Apple is taking a stand for privacy and taking a stand against the federal government trying to impede users' privacy. In fact, they have negotiated this backroom deal with the with the FBI that says, hey, we'll we fine, we won't break into the iPhone itself. We'll just give you all the data that's synced up on our side. In private talks with Apple soon after, representative of the FBI's crime agent and its operational technology division objected to the plan, arguing that it would deny them the most effective means for gaining evidence Against iPhone using suspects, the government sources said the company did not want to risk being attacked by public officials for protecting criminals sued for moving previously accessible data out of reach of the government agencies or used for an excuse for new legislative action against encryption. In other words, Apple was afraid that if they offered end to end encryption for their users backup. That public officials would say, hey, we had access to the data before. Nobody was asking for this and you did it anyway. So now we don't have access to these uh, these unencrypted backups. That's your fault for doing it. And so now we need to go to Congress and lobby for encryption. So Apple is doing this for your protection because they were concerned. They were concerned for you that laws would get passed that would that would that would restrict their ability to implement encryption. That's why they gave the FBI access to unencrypted copies of your iCloud data. Instead of protecting users with iCloud end-to-end encryption, Apple has shifted to focus on protecting some of the most sensitive user information, such as saved passwords and health data. Yeah, because I'll tell you what, the most valuable thing on my phone is the passwords I saved from sites that probably store them in plain text anyway, and my pulse from from my uh, my smartwatch, right? That's what I really care about. Now, the texts, my emails, the photos, <laughs> that's no big deal. But my passwords and my health data, that's what I want protected. Backed up contact information, texts, iMessage, WhatsApp, and other encrypted services remain available to Apple employees and authorities. In October of 2018, the Alphabet Incorporation Google announced a similar system to Apple to drop Uh, to drop a plan for secure backups. The maker of Android software, which runs on about two on about three quarters of the world's mobile devices said that users could back up their data to its cloud without trusting the company with the key. 
Two people familiar with the project said that Google gave no advance notice to government and picked a time to announce it when encryption was not in the news. The company continues to offer the service but declined to comment on how many users have taken the option up. The FBI did not respond to request a comment on Google's service for the agency's approach to it. So there you have it. If you're one of those people that sit around and say to yourself, Apple is the answer to our privacy woes, I would still argue that Apple probably has a better stance than Google uh, just in general about privacy. But just don't make any mistakes. These people are out to get your data. They make their money off their data. They make their money off your data. They want to be in bed with the government because if they're able to work and cooperate with the FBI, they get favor from the FBI. And so I think I I don't know why this story is coming out now, because, again, this was plans that were that were talked about over two years ago and then never went forward. I suspect it's something along the lines of the Apple got drugged through the news yet again and called out by the Trump administration and the FBI for not being cooperative when, in fact, they dropped plans to encrypt the, the iCloud backup specifically to help people. So I think that's pretty frustrating. But we have the link in the show notes. If you'd like to read it yourself, uh, check that out, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Now, at the end of the show, you can't – I yes, last week, we ran out of time. And so if you're not getting the show notes, if you're not going over to podcast.asknoahshow.com, then you're not getting the full show because we never, ever get through everything that's in the show docket. Well, last week, I made a reference to something I planned to get through later in the show. Guess what happened? We ran out of time. It's PiWigo, P-I-W-I-G-O, PiWigo.org. And PiWigo is an open source photo gallery software for the web. It's designed for organizations, teams, and individuals. Now, they have a mobile app, and I've started to use PiWigo because what I'm what I'm trying to do is get myself off of any sort of cloud service whatsoever, and that includes Google and Google Photos. One of the things, and I mentioned this on the program before, when you get a warrant to search somebody's uh, camera, you might get the last 25, 30 pictures that they took. Oh, well, was it was pertinent to the crime, wasn't pertinent to the crime, but you got the last 30 pictures, right? These days, when somebody goes through your phone, man, they're getting every picture you as a person took. Every single picture since the time my kids are growing up in the world of cloud services and Google. And so when they take pictures, my nine-year-old takes pictures with his phone, that's tied to his Google account. And so 45 years from now, if he were to ever be arrested or detained and they were to get a search warrant to search his phone, they're going to go back and find pictures from 45 years ago. So it's a massive problem to me to have all of your data in one place that's super accessible to not just the government, but just everyday hackers. The, you know, the 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 celebrity mishap that happened a few years ago where there was a, a large amount of iCloud photos dumped onto the Internet was because of poor user security. But nonetheless, it wasn't some government or state sponsored attack. It was just some creep inside of his bedroom that. That that figured out the reset password reset questions. Right. And so he was able to get and access data that he shouldn't have been able to access. So things like PyWigo, I believe, are the solution to that. It will allow me to have the kind of pictures that I want access to available to me anywhere I want access to them. And once pictures that I don't necessarily need syncing to devices or they're retired, I can just move them to a regular free NAS storage or storage system of my choice and get those 
out of the limelight. And so Piwego, P-I-W-I-G-O. Again, we'll have a link for you in the show notes. Make sure to check that out. Matt writes in and says, hey, Noah, first off, thanks for everything you do for the Linux and open source community. I have a hosted PBX legal concern. I use Vox Telesis for my SIP trunking provider. Could I use them as a SIP provider and the hosted free PBX or 3CX and provide services to my client? If we build a client monthly per extension, are there any legal concerns that you know of that my company would need to fulfill in order to be in, in compliance? Uh, and the answer to that question is, no, you can't do that. In order to uh, offer phone service, you have to be a registered telco. And so the what will happen is it'll go fine for a while. And and at some point, the federal government's going to come knocking and say, hey, are you a registered telco? Do you pay the telco taxes that you have to pay? Uh, well, we're here to collect. Uh, and if you want more information on that, I invite you to to chat with Vox Telesis because they would be more than happy to explain the the uttermost details of it as they have to pay those taxes. Hey, if you want the latest, follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. That's where you'll find out if the show isn't happening or delayed for whatever reason. We have community get-togethers, those kinds of things, as well as the Linux user group that happens right here in Grand Force. Want all that information? Go to Twitter.com. Follow us at Ask Noah Show. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to Sarah R. Call Screener, JT, executive producer. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Have a good week.